Well, howdy there, Internet people. It's Bo again. And so today we are going to be talking to the person primarily Debbie Wasserman. So uh, take it away. Talk a little bit about yourself. My name is Jen Perlman, and I am the person primarying Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida's 23rd Congressional District. We are down here in mostly we're Broward. We have a little bit of Dade County in our district. So just so people have an idea of where we are, we are an exceptionally gerrymandered blue district, and we also have closed primaries. And that is one of the ways in which that our incumbent has been sitting safely for so many years. So as far as me, I am a second generation native Floridian. I was born and raised in North Miami Beach. I have degrees in journalism, marketing and law. And I was a practicing attorney doing criminal defense. And then after that, doing some corporate litigation and some other things. When I moved down here to Florida, I was gone. For, let me I was gone for a few years, getting my degrees, came back home where I've now been since 2003. So I have been watching her as my congressperson for 15 years, 16 years, 16 years. She's been our congressperson. And over that time, she has taken inordinate amounts of money from special interests and corporate interests that are very contrary to our interests. And as a Floridian, and one of the main things that people have noticed down here is the, the, the hurting of our environment. And one of the causes of our problems, whether it's blue-green algae or red tide being exacerbated, is the industrial agricultural runoff. And one of the biggest sources of that is the big sugar industry. And that is one of Debbie's biggest corporate donors is big sugar. So I've just been watching for years as these corporations and their interests have basically been dismantling our interests. And so when I saw in 18 that several non-corporate candidates were able to break through the establishment, I felt that maybe the timing was somewhat, maybe we're there. Maybe we're at the breaking point where people are starting to recognize that the corporate takeover has not served us. And maybe there is an opportunity now to come in and try to get that money out. So my involvement now is more of a timing thing, even though I've been involved in policy and campaigns since before I was old enough to vote. Uh, so for those people outside of Florida, explain to them what the runoff does, especially to those of us up here in the panhandle when, when our beaches go. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Okay, so – it, it's it's complicated, and I, I, I know I, I have spoken with several people who are experts on this who really understand it. Um, sometimes their voices start to sound like the teacher from Charlie Brown, you know, with some of this stuff. But essentially what, what has happened is we have industrial agricultural um, industries. Now, Florida happens to be very big with sugar, but there's other ones. It's not only big sugar. And essentially what has happened is south of Lake Okeechobee, where a lot of these agricultural plants are, is their industrial runoff is causing this exacerbated bloom of this toxic blue-green algae in our water. Now, the blue-green algae is more of an inland water problem, whereas red tide is much more of a coastal problem. And both of those things would be naturally occurring, but they would not be exacerbated at the rate they are. So the way if you were to look at a map of Florida where Lake Okeechobee goes and you were to look south of Lake Okeechobee, that used to all be Everglades. 
And what the what would naturally happen with any sort of runoff is the Everglades would actually clean it. The Everglades act as a filter. It's a natural filter for our water that we do use as our drinking water. But what happens now is companies that are big sugar companies, they own that land that's south of Lake Okeechobee, and they do not let it do what it's meant to naturally do. And instead, it's being blocked, and our water is not getting naturally filtered. And then I, I know that they're getting subsidies. So in other words, in order, it's, I try to explain, it's, we need to deal with this like they're children. So we need to incentivize good behavior and we need to disincentivize the bad behavior. And instead what we're doing is by giving sugar subsidies, and I'm sure many other of our industrial polluters are given subsidies. It's not just sugar, that's just what I'm familiar with. So we're giving them subsidies. So we're essentially encouraging them to not allow us to use the Everglades for natural filtration and to not reduce their level of contamination and runoff into our inland waters. And instead, we're promoting it. So wouldn't we want to be maybe taxing the companies at a higher rate for the amount of pollution as opposed to encouraging it? I would think so, but I'm not somebody taking money from big sugar. So I, I just I think that the appearance of impropriety with my particular congressperson and this particular issue is very, very huge. Uh, you know, up here, when when I was younger, we'd get red tide like maybe once every three or four years and it yeah. wouldn't last long and it wouldn't be a big deal. It's every year now. Yeah. Um, and they end up a lot of times end up closing the beaches or throwing the the biological warning sign flags up and stuff like that. It's a pain. It really is. Um, okay. So what, uh, what's your ideology? Are you a social Democrat? Are you democratic socialist? Are you, where, where are you at on that spectrum? Because I see a lot of parallels with some other upstart people in the house of representatives. Yeah, you know, the label thing is very interesting to me because, you know, I never really understood why Bernie calls himself a democratic socialist because that doesn't seem to me to be, he is a social democrat and I actually wish he had said that from the beginning and instead giving all this sort of ammunition to the right to use the term socialism like it's some horrible scary thing. I, you know what, I don't, I don't necessarily have one particular ism. And what, what I would like to, to as, as far as I'm concerned, it's about justice. It's about social justice, economic justice, and environmental justice. And more than anything, it's about punching up. So I would say that the key point of my campaign and, and what distinguishes us is that we see it as actually as a term of service and not a career. So I have no career motives. I have no career ambition in this whatsoever. This is something that I want to do as a service. I want to get the money out. I want to represent regular people. I believe that certain industries, such as, for example, healthcare, public education, and corrections, should never be for profit. There should never be a profit motive in those particular industries. However, with regards to, let's say you invent a widget and you want to rip people off and make millions of dollars by selling your widget, I'm all about capitalism. If you want to do that and, and you can get very wealthy properly treating your employees and not polluting the environment and paying your taxes, I'm all for it. So I wouldn't say that I'm not in favor of capitalism, 
But I just don't think that the people that are getting that wealthy could get that wealthy without stealing that money. So I, I think that if I had met a billionaire that I truly believe earned that fairly, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I just don't think it's possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be honest. I know one like very, very extremely wealthy person that got it honestly, and he will tell you more than anything it was luck. He bought a bunch of land that wound up uh, a resort up here, wanted to buy it. And, right. and, he, and he went from nothing to having hundreds of millions like overnight, but he'll be the first one to tell you it was luck. Yeah. Um, it wasn't hard work. No. <laughs> I, I will never accept that, that people like Jeff Bezos work harder than my husband or my dad did or anybody else who just is a working person. So there is no, and in fact, some of the hardest working people are some of the poorest people in this country. So to say that there's somehow a meritocracy or somehow they've earned that money, nobody earns a billion dollars that like that. It, it, nobody works that hard. Okay. So let's get to breaking down on specific issues. Um, here in Florida, one that's definitely going to be coming up guns. Where are you at? That's funny because the past few days, I've actually had a couple people, and of course, these um, are people in the community where I'm in that have been very affected by not just Stoneman Douglas, but we are talking about the wealthy, educated, suburban sort of gun fear factor is, is what it really seems like to me. And I have a couple of thoughts on it. I mean, I support any and all federal regulations, background checks, registries. I think people should have to take courses to, to be able to own firearms. I have no problem with any of that. But interestingly, thanks to you, I am no longer a supporter of banning assault weapons, even though I will say in my state, I had prior to watching your series, I had signed the petition for the amendment to ban assault weapons. I don't know that it'll necessarily go anywhere. And my thought on that is it is it's a Band-Aid that is going to make a whole group of people feel better, but not actually accomplish anything. And I think at the same time, when you, well, banning things in general has just never really been the way to go. But I do a lot of work in the Black community and in more disenfranchised communities. And banning assault weapons will really not do anything at all to help them with the issues that they have with gun violence. Right. So when people in the disenfranchised communities see an event like Parkland and it gets everybody all up in arms and freaking out and we got to do this and we got to do that and ban this and do that. A lot of the people in the communities that I work with feel um, that that is a very white privileged somewhat mentality because we've never cared so much about the gun violence in their neighborhoods. And we don't really care about really handling the, the basis of what our problem is. So my, my thoughts on gun, and I am very familiar with a well-regulated militia, and um, it isn't a Second Amendment issue, it's a sick society issue. But in general, I believe in any regulations to regulate who can have weapons as best as we can, but banning, I, I just don't think it'll work. So that's my, that's my opinion on the Second Amendment. All right, Medicare for all. I am a strong proponent of single payer. I do not think we should have any profit motive in healthcare for any essential services. I don't think we should have insurance companies 
providing duplicative services. I think as soon as we allow that, we have a two-tiered system, which will inevitably go to hurt the most disenfranchised people. So to me, the only way to safeguard healthcare as a human right is for me to have the same insurance as my congressperson, who is my employee, who has amazingly good health coverage, interestingly. And if we all have the same coverage, we will all have the same vested interest in protecting the quality of our care. So I don't, I don't like the idea of a two-tiered system. I don't like the idea of a public option. I think those will not give a real, um, we won't get an idea as to how well single payer can work so long as we're allowing any profit motive in our system. Okay. All right. Uh, what's another big one here in Florida? Uh, the school voucher thing. Imagine you have some opinions on that. I do. I do have opinions on that. Um, like I was saying, I mean, public education is like healthcare in that it should not have a profit motive. And I don't necessarily have a problem with the concept of some charter schools. We have a couple down here that are nonprofit, that they actually go through the municipalities and they function very much just like um, any public school. And as a result, they are very good charter schools. So I don't necessarily have a problem with um, more of a privatization if there's not a profit motive in it and it is still a public service. So it really depends on the nature. But as far as vouchers, that is just another way for people to siphon the money out of our public services and give it to private industry. So uh, that is nothing that I would support. And all it's doing is lowering the quality of our public education. Because even with a voucher, most of the people couldn't afford to go to a private school with that amount of money anyway. So you're, you're, you're just, it's, a, one of the, it's another Band-Aid. It's another thing that makes people like they have a choice. They like this idea of having a choice. Well, I could choose to spend my money here or there. Yeah, you have a choice, but you're lowering the quality of the choice for everybody else. So I, I don't think that choice is good if the choices are not quality choices. But ultimately, healthcare and education specifically are, to me, they're not costs. Those are investments. And for us to compare that to something like, let's say, war cost makes no sense. Healthcare and education are in the best interest of everybody in this country. Nobody is better off with uneducated, sick people amongst us. So it doesn't even make sense to call it a cost. It's an investment. And I don't think we have even begun to realize the payoff of those investments. Certainly not with healthcare, because we don't have universal healthcare. But even with public education in this country, it's always been woefully underfunded. It's never been uh, teachers are not properly compensated. We devalue the quality of education and we devalue the nature of the people that provide that education. So that only hurts us all. I, you know, it's amazing to me. I, I don't see how anybody would begrudge investing in educating our citizenry. I, it's, I just don't understand that at all. No, I definitely feel you. Um, let's see. I mean, it's Florida. Immigration's not really. Now let's ask about immigration. Where are you you at on that? Personally, I think ICE is an unnecessary organization. I think it's superfluous. I think we don't need it. I think we did fine um, patrolling our borders and keeping ourselves safe from an immigration standpoint. We did fine prior to ICE. And to me, 
it the way that it is being used. Now, that could be just how um, the people at the top are training and implementing, and it might not be just the nature of ICE, but to me, it, it seems like almost a fascist Gestapo um, just basically with the sole purpose of hurting people. I don't see them as protecting and serving. I don't see the people that they're going after as being necess necessarily dangerous to society. And the mannerism in which they are going about doing their job is a level of brutality that should just not exist in this country. It should, there, there's just no place for treating people that way in this country to me. Yeah. That's kind of what I expected. You know, it, it's it's Florida. We're like, yeah, we really don't care. If, I mean, like, no, uh, we, yeah. don't, well, look, we on the left <laughs> certainly do not care. Um, a lot of the, the right and a lot of the Trump supporters, I actually do believe that that is one of their issues that they feel strong about in terms of keeping America first, making sure that we can take care of our own. Ironically, they don't really want to do that either. But there is this very strong sentiment that I that we've all been feeling in the past few years that's very anti-other, whether it's Muslims, immigrants, poor brown people from Mexico or wherever we think they're coming from. And this is the key thing that I implore to everybody. The source of your issues, the source of your problems is never from the poor disenfranchised people that are below you socioeconomically. That is never the source of the issue. Uh, the source of the issue is up and never down. So when, when we're talking about any sort of maltreatment or not even welcoming immigrants to this country, it's abhorrent to me. I, I find it sickening and I, it, it, it makes my skin crawl. So it's not, and, and not only that, but factually speaking, and from a criminal justice perspective, the immigrants are infinitely less likely to be perpetrators of crime in this country than the people that are from here. So it's not even based on any sort of reasonable basis. There's no basis other than fear factor. And so I, I don't usually ever get behind anything that isn't fact and reason based and having any sort of dislike or mistrust of immigrants is completely irrational. Well, you know, I, I'm up here in the very, very red part of Florida. And the as far as the rhetoric, they're like, yeah, you know, build the wall or whatever. Yeah. But when you actually talk to them about anybody they've ever had contact with, they're like, oh, no, 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 not that <laughs> That doesn't count, not for them. Yeah, it's one of those things they bought into the rhetoric because the person saying it has an R behind their name, but they they don't believe it themselves, and they know they don't believe it when it's when it's placed in front of them. Um, and but anyway, uh, this is where mass. This is where the masses are so much more infinitely dangerous when they just follow some sort of directive that makes absolute no logical sense whatsoever, but. Essentially, we know this. We've seen this for, for forever. You take a bunch of people that feel like their luck is down and they don't have what they need and you blame them um, or you blame others for their lot in life and you blame the poor, you blame the disenfranchised, you blame minorities, and it alleviates the top from anybody looking at them as to the source of the problem. And it's just, it will never barring immigrants and disenfranchising poor people and people of different ethnicities and people that are disenfranchised 
hurting those people is never going to help us. It just isn't. There is no logical connection between keeping poor people disenfranchised and keeping us healthy and safe. There, there's no connection between those things. And speaking of those people at the top, for those outside of Florida, uh, her, her opponent here is extremely connected. So I'm very curious. What's the plan? How how, how are you? How are you going to go after? Her? <laughs> well, you know, in in some respects, I I do have a certain amount of concern, especially watching the past few days. That where no matter what you do, the machine and the establishment is just churning twice as hard against you. And I and I get that. And to some extent, that is what has kept things the way they are for for so many years. But like I said, I feel somewhat hopeful that we have seen some non-corporatists be able to slide through. Now, it's more of a slow trickle, but and it's and it won't happen quickly. It took us, you know, how many years to get into this mess? It's not going to happen in two election cycles to get out of it. But the reality is when I talk to people and that's the key thing is talking to people. I'm on the ground canvassing every single day. I'm knocking on doors that probably my opponent has never even seen. I'm going into neighborhoods that she would never go in and doesn't know anything about. And when you go and talk to actual people, for the most part, they are just so appreciative and thankful that someone's even coming to talk to them that it it doesn't even matter if I could promise the world to these people. The fact that I care enough to just come in and talk and find out what's going on here, what can I do to help you? So the first thing is just talking to people. But the cool thing that we've done is I've created an organization called GenCore. And GenCore, like Marine Corps, but GenCore. And GenCore is what I call our volunteers. And we are out doing community service every day throughout the district. I am getting connected with nonprofits, municipalities. I have people going to meetings saying, how can we help you? And the idea, like I said, is if congressional representation is a term of service, then we need to just be doing the service. So basically, win or not, we're just doing the job. We're out there showing this congressional district what it's supposed to look like, having a representative that actually is present in your district, knows what's going on, cares about you, and is working to find solutions. And not everything has a solution. Not every not everybody can be helped. But it is amazing how people respond when you tell them, yeah, we're here just to serve you. I'm, I'm actually here to find out what can we do to help you. So whether it's cleaning beaches, we do parks, we do the mobile school pantry, we work at the veterans nursing home, basically everywhere I can find a link to where we can be sending somebody to serve, that's what I've been doing. And I've been doing it now for a little less than a year. And it's amazing. So I, I feel to me, honestly, regardless of what happens with this election, I will keep this going. I honestly don't know why she doesn't have her own little group out there serving the community. It's really not hard to do. It's actually quite easy. It's not. It's actually quite easy. So I think the combination of just being present in these communities, reaching neighbors and community people that have never really come out to vote. That's, that's a big issue is we have mostly everybody in Broward that could be registered is is registered. We have less than 1% of our people that could be registered, but choose to not be registered. So our issue isn't registering voters. It's getting them to come vote and giving them a reason to vote. And of course, then educating them on closed primaries and being registered a certain way in order to participate and all that. But really, I've been reaching into communities that have been otherwise unengaged. 
And ironically, those are the people that need the most help. So, right. well, that's 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 yeah, that's how that normally works out. Those that, that are forgotten as far as representation, they end up in the worst. The or worst voting spot. against their own self-interest. And a lot of the ways that that happens, uh, specifically down here in the in the black community down here, and it's worked for Debbie for very many years, is essentially you pay pastors and church leaders and you make a donation to their congregation and essentially they get their their flock to support you. And instead of going about it that way, I'm going into these neighborhoods and I'm meeting the flock and I'm finding out how I can help them. So I I just have a completely different paradigm as to how to do this. And it may work and it may not. But I, I do find that it resonates and I do feel better about what I'm If I spent this whole year just talking about myself and then I lost, then I wasted a year of my life. If I spend this whole year doing community service and I lose, then I've spent this whole year doing community service. So that's more of just sort of helping me get through this than anything. It's somewhat self-serving in that way, but it's been working, I think. Well, the other thing is you build an organization like that. It will carry on. Even if it's not under you, it will carry on. So even if you lose, you win. Uh, You build a community strong enough and it doesn't matter what the representatives do. Um, all right. So is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, well, I mean, we can always make our pitch that we need financial help as much as we don't take we won't take corporate money and I don't take corporate PAC money and I I can't be bought. So when you're like that, it's not so easy to raise money because the people that are supporting us are the people that don't have a lot of money. So we really are very much funded on small monthly donations. I think my average donation is somewhere like twenty three dollars. Actually, which is fine because we ask for 23 for District 23. And it, my number keeps coming down as I get more and more contributors. But, yeah, I mean, we need help. We're fighting a corporate monolith. And we need people to go to gen2020.com and donate as, as much as they can or as, even as little as they can possibly. Every little bit is a message to the machine that we will not, we do not answer to them. And I, and I also want to make it very clear that even though I'm running as a Democrat, because it really is the only way to do that um, in Florida in a gerrymandered district, I have no um, love for that organization or that party. I do not give them money. And in fact, when events come up down here and people ask my campaign, well, do you want to do this? I'm like, no, I'm not going to give them money. I've got people that are hardworking people giving me money from all over the country for, to stand up to this establishment why would I give money to the establishment? So I do the best I can to sort of toe the line within the party to be able to do this in a primary. But I get a lot of support from no party affiliates and Republicans because they know they're stuck with a Democrat in this district. They know that they're, they're not getting a Republican in this district. So they then have an option to have someone that can't be bought. And I think that appeals across the political spectrum. Right. Well, I, I, I think you'd probably find a lot of people who would be more at ease with somebody who's running from their ideological standpoint, what they believe, rather than you know who who can donate the most. Um, so yeah, definitely make sure you well before we wrap out, you give up all the information for the the websites again. Okay. Uh, is there are there any issues specific to Broward um, that you want to talk about? 
Um, yeah, I could, I could do that. I mean, I don't know that it's so specific to Broward, but it's definitely huge here is the obvious wealth inequality and lack of affordable housing. Broward has one of the worst, um, I mean, statistically, as far as affordable housing, it's really, really bad here. And I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but I know that we're in like the top handful of, of you know, urban areas where people just cannot afford to live. And the, yet there are so many wealthy people here. So it's an inequality. But interestingly, I will be talking at a rally tomorrow for the fight for 15 folks at a McDonald's that are still making, I think, eight and a quarter. I think they're at eight and a quarter an hour. And, you know, that's just obscene. It is just so the concept of anybody working a full time job should be able to live with dignity isn't radical. It's just not radical. And I think the more that I can communicate this to people in terms of, you know, when someone like Joe Biden says, oh, give me a break. When I was young, I had you just go get a job. Just you stop complaining. Well, I want to say, well, yeah, Joe. But when you were that age, somebody could work at minimum wage and still live. So, yeah, I get that. And so to me, if we would raise the minimum wage to a living wage and provide health care to people simultaneously, we wouldn't have to be obsessed with this concept of affordable housing because people would just be able to afford to live. So, you know, it, it all needs to happen simultaneously. But down here, we definitely have an, an affordable housing crisis. So, yeah, the municipalities need to step in and we need to build affordable housing. But I still think overall the best approach would be to just pay people a living wage. So it would then that their housing would be affordable. So that's definitely a big issue down here. I don't know what you see up where you are. Oh, we're we have like along the beach here. You have uh, like just an insane amount of tourism, and it's year round. It never stops. It slows mm-hmm. a little in the winter, but not much. So even like the McDonald's and stuff like that here, they're paying ten, eleven bucks an hour. And if they people live north of the bay. They have affordable housing like here right. because of the way it's kind of self-segregated between the wealthy and the not wealthy. Um, it's basically driving over the bridge and then everything becomes affordable because you're making three or four dollars more an hour. Um, we don't have that here. Yeah. I mean, that's like when you said eight, eight twenty five or eight fifty, I was like, wow. Like, yeah, I, that's that was what they were when I was in high school. That's what was being paid. And these are and the thing is, is they some people in that sort of mentality dismiss it like, oh, it's teenagers. No, most of the people working in McDonald's are adults and trying to have a normal income and feed their families. So, you know, I just have this crazy idea that people shouldn't have to work three jobs and drive an Uber to be able to live. So, you know, if you're working a solid work week, you should be able to afford to live. This, this, this shouldn't be a thing. And 825 is not cutting it, not in the Fort Lauderdale area. And so it's, it's really, I, I've met people in the past year that they barely know how they're living themselves. Mm -hmm. People living in such squalor people living in conditions that are just not, it's just not acceptable. It's just not acceptable. So I'm going to do everything I can to make that better for those people. And yeah, a living wage would be a good start. Uh, that, that, that would be a good start. And honestly, $15 an hour still really isn't a living wage down here. I believe it would be about 23 from the last numbers I heard if it had kept rising with 
with cost of living, I believe we'd be at about 23 in my metro area. So when they're sitting there fighting for 15 and nobody's even willing to get, it's talk about just begging for scraps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that was, that was a surprising number when you said that, cause it's, it's, and I forget the way we're set up here. Um, and it's just the way it was developed. Uh, but well, supply and demand. Yeah. I mean, we don't, you know, if we're one of the few er- where I live is one of the few areas where if you're making, you know, 24 a year, you're completely, you can be comfortable. Um, yeah. If, if you live here, you know, if you live south of the Bay, you're not getting anywhere. Um, right. And if but, you live in Broward, you're probably not even in housing. Right. Um, okay. So one question I ask everybody is what can the people watching this, people at home, what's one thing they can do in their own communities to change the world, save everything? Okay. Well, you know, I I would recommend doing what we're doing with my organization. Go to community association meetings, go to homeowner association meetings, go to civic organizations, go to municipalities and listen and find out where there's need to help. There is no shortage of need. And a lot of people are very familiar with organizations um, you just need to reach out and say, how can I help you? It's, it's, it's amazing what we can do. And the more people that you reach out, the more connections that you make, the more they connect to each other. I have bridged so many organizations together in the past year that it's almost like I feel like I'm putting a puzzle together and it's just really cool to see. And I, it feels good. And so I would just encourage people find the need. There's no shortage. There is there is even if it's even if it's you know going to the library and just doing a little bit of research and saying like what's going on in this area and how can I help or you know there's no I mean we have a lot of environmental issues here but some places it's you know maybe it is a huge homeless problem specifically in your area and the best way to do is maybe have a, a fundraiser or a clothing drive a lot of people are in need of toiletries that's a huge thing among um, a lot of the needy people is things like toiletries, feminine hygiene products, things that we take for granted that are actually costly and a lot of people just cannot afford. So something like high school students can easily do is have a drive for used clothes or bring in, you know, the little samples of stuff that you steal from hotels and do a a mass collection and distribution. There's so many people that need. So, you know, or go to a beach cleanup. There's... There's no shortage of beaches that need to be cleaned. All right. Okay. Give everybody your information again, your, your Twitter, Facebook, and your website. Sure. So our website is Jen, J-E-N, 2020.com. And Facebook is Jen Perlman. Wait a minute. What is that? No, no, no. That's not even my Facebook. Hold on. Jen Perlman for Congress, or is it just Jen 2020? Jen 2020 is Facebook. And then Instagram and Twitter are Jen FL 23. So that's the two that are different. And I'm, this is where my son tells me I'm old because I don't understand how the Twitter and the Instagram work, but it's Jen FL 23. And yeah, we just need the love. We need the support. We need the word spread and we need money. All right. All right, everybody. So that's going to wrap up the show for today. Uh, and I guess it's just a thought and we will uh, talk to you later. <laughs>